So this month we are going to be uh, looking at this idea, this month of August, this idea of the church. And I want you to think about this statement with me for the next four Sundays. This comes out of the book of Ephesians. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I suspect for some of you that sounds like a normal statement. You know, I love the church. But it's not normal for everybody. There's a lot of talk uh, in the last few years about uh, churches that abuse people, uh, people that have been traumatized by even good churches. Uh, There are some people in our own midst who have been traumatized by churches who've been abusive. Uh, So Christ loves the church, really. Do you know anything about the church's history? How many of you have ever heard of the hymn we don't, we don't sing it, but it's been around for a long time, so you might be older uh, to, to know about this. Faith of our fathers, living still, in spite of dungeons, you know, fire and sword, etc. So we, we sang that hymn for, for generations, actually. That hymn's at least uh, three, four hundred years old, um, and uh, or around that period. Did you know that hymn was written by... Uh, a Catholic, it was a Catholic hymn written against the Protestants who were slaughtering them. In fact, we leave out a couple of the Catholic stanzas because they don't agree with Protestant theology. Uh, And we could go on and on, right? Um, Christ loved the church, really. Well, of course, that begs the question a little bit, who's the church, right? Is everybody in the church of the church? Uh, who does Christ love? And, and he loved the church. It doesn't just say he loves the church. And by the way, it doesn't just say Christ loves me either. It says he loves the church. You go back to uh, at least the time when I became a, a believer back in the 80s. And I remember one of the phrases I heard right off the bat as a brand new Christian is that Christianity isn't a religion, it's a relationship. I like that idea. I mean, that just sounded so attractive. But it also has a little bit of misleading ideas in it, too. Christianity is a religion, first of all. uh, And it's about people. Uh, Interestingly, very it's hard to find in the New Testament any place where Christ loves me. He's always loving in us. And when we pray, as the Lord taught us to pray, we don't pray, my Father, who art in heaven. We pray, our Father. There's a sense in which we are a part of something so much bigger than just me. And so all of these things come up in a simple statement like Christ loved the church and he gave herself up for her. So over the next few weeks, we want to look at the center of the church. What's her center? What's her witness, her authority, and her beauty? And we're going to be using the the text that I think was uh, given to us by God himself a little letter in the New Testament called the book of Ephesians that probably says more about the church collectively than any other book, even though the whole Bible in one sense is about the church, uh, about God's people. Uh, Ephesians gives us the clearest, most specific focus on the church, this little six-letter chapter book in the New Testament. And I'll give you just in one sentence what Ephesians is all about uh, in terms of the church. And if you're a writer, don't write this down. It'll be too much too fast. Uh, So the church, according to the book of Ephesians, 
is a gospel-mastering, Christ-adoring, organically united family building a temple. Let me just say that again. It is a gospel-mastering, Christ-adoring, organically united family building a temple. And by the way, that temple, that temple is actually this radically beautiful safe house in a war zone. This radically beautiful safe house for all peoples. It's a temple for all peoples. That's what the church is in the midst of a war zone. We're building this radically beautiful safe house. And what is a temple? It's a place where God and humanity meet. So that's what the church is. And so we're going to start today by looking at her center. So let me pray for us, and then we'll get underway. Father, we thank you for the church, and we long to understand it. We long to have our eyes opened in these weeks to come, because we want to love what Christ loves and in such a way that we would give ourselves up for her as well. And we pray that in the head of the church's name, Jesus. Amen. So if you have a Bible, look at Ephesians chapter 1 with me today. If you don't have one with you, you can certainly look at your bulletin. The, the main passage of everything we're going to look at is right there. This little six-letter uh six-chapter, sorry, book, this little letter in the New Testament. And uh, this was one of the few letters that the Apostle Paul, if you're not familiar with what an apostle means, it just means a, uh, a divinely endorsed messenger of Jesus Christ. And Paul was an apostle, and he wrote several of the letters that make up the New Testament portion of the Bible. And this particular letter he sent to a church in a, in a town called Ephesus, but it was particularly designed to be copied and sent to all the churches. So it was meant for general distribution to all the churches that existed at the time. And so we come to this place, uh, Ephesians chapter 1, and here the, the way we're going to outline things today is that we're going to answer the question, what is at the center of the church from verses 3 through 14? We're going to look at who is the church's center, and then we're going to look at who we are in the middle of verses 15 uh, through 19. And let me put it this way, without these things in Ephesians chapter 1, you don't have a church, you just have a club. You don't have a church, you just have a club. And so we're going to look at this idea first off as the, what is at our center? The gospel. In verses 3 through 14, uh, we have a description of the gospel, the what of the center of the church. Now, It'd be interesting just to do this, and it almost would be fun if you didn't feel like I was trying to intimidate you, but it'd be to just at, have a huge whiteboard up here and, and say, what is the gospel? Tell me everything you know about the gospel and see if we could actually fill the whiteboard and need another one. In fact, if I asked you, what role does the father play in the gospel? What role does the son play in the gospel? What role does the spirit play in the gospel? These are the kinds of questions that uh, we should ask ourselves and we should know the answer. But I will admit to you, um, I, I identify with so much of this, this first section here. Did you know that when Paul wrote this letter and someone else was probably transcribing it while he was speaking it, 
it, when he originally wrote it, it was in Greek. And did you know that verses 3 through 14 are one long sentence? It doesn't appear that way in English here, but that's, uh, it's one long sentence. And, and what I think Paul is getting at here is something that anybody who spent any time thinking about the gospel understands why he didn't want to stop and make a period. There is an artist that recently I became more familiar with uh, in a book, Vincent Van Gogh. And yeah, he's the guy who sliced off his ear. And yes, he's the guy who took his own life. But there was a statement of Van Gogh's that just registered with me. Van Gogh was a prolific artist, by the way. More than anybody else in his time, he, he was constantly pumping out artwork. At one point, he said, someone has a great fire in his soul, and nobody ever comes to warn themselves at it. And passersby see nothing but a little smoke. Now, on the surface, I know that's like a, oh, no wonder, you know, the guy took his life. What a downer. (laughs) But just hold on for a minute. Don't be so quick to judge people. Um, There's something going on here. It's not just that this person is struggling with depression or anything like that at all. There is this sense in which they've encountered something that is so overwhelming and so amazing. And then when they go to, to deliver it, it just feels, it feels so shallow compared to what they've discovered. I was just talking with a friend of mine this week who's in the Czech Republic. We've known each other for decades. And um, uh, somehow I was reminding him of this quote. And he was saying, you know what? You told me uh, something years ago that I've been telling to other pastors for many years. He said that, Uh, You describe preaching as going into a a cave and running into this massive bonfire. And by the time you get it out and bring it to the people, it's this flickering little candle and it's so agonizing. So with that as a disclaimer, let me see if I can try to do justice of this flyover of one of the most amazing descriptions of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So verses 3 through Um, at least, uh, let's see, six here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. I mean, that's enough right there for several messages. But basically, we're going to look at this whole thing in 3 through 14 as a flyover. And it starts out by saying, all of heaven has been spilled out on us. God held no blessings back when he gave us Christ. Not a single blessing back. He has blessed us in the beloved. Everything that the Father had for the Son, he's given to everyone attached to the Son. And so we're told right off the bat that we, before Genesis 1, get this, before there was Adams, A-T-O-M, not A-D-A-M, before there were Adams, God knew you. Everyone who belongs to him forever, God already knew you before you even existed. And he chose you. And I realize that this creates problems for people. Uh, It says in love he predestined us. And unfortunately, we spend so much time on the word predestined, we forget the word in love. 
instead of scratching our heads over how could this be and how does free will work in with this and it's unsettling to me, just for a moment, just be awed by this. Instead of scratching your head, drop your jaw. We just sang of it today, amazing grace, I was lost and I was found. Do you realize that before you knew you were lost, you were already found by God? The only reason at the end of the day that you and I belong to Jesus Christ is because God took the initiative first before I and my heart wanted anything at all to do with him. Everything else is a distraction to that idea. And that's that right off the bat, that's what we have here. We are blessed in the beloved. And then verses 7 and 8, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. It's like he can't find enough words here. We have this redemption that is blood secured. Do you ever wonder sometimes if you're worth saving? Do you ever wonder sometimes if your saving is kind of probationary and you should still be saved? You'll always wonder that as long as you're looking to your own blood. But if you look at the sufficiency of the blood that was shed for you, it'll drive away all those doubts. This blood-secured, inexhaustible redemption. Here's the thing. You cannot outsin grace. That's what Romans 5 says. You cannot outsin grace. And that's disturbing if you think about it for a while. This is such a weird idea, this redemption. No other religion even comes close to this. God, when he saves us, puts a Teflon coating on us. Yes, we still sin, but sin can't stick because of that blood Teflon that is on us because of Jesus Christ. Verses 9 and 10, in all wisdom and insight he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. We have access to why. We don't just have lavish redemption. We know what God is up to. We've been let in on the big plan. This cosmic operation of God, this gets you out of bed in the morning and this helps you sleep at night. I don't care what else is going on in your life, this gets you out of bed in the morning and this helps you sleep at night. We know this as certain as the sun is out right now, wow that's strange, uh, as certain as <laughs> we, we know this. We know that right now, God is summing up all things in Christ. All things wrong with the world are being realigned to Jesus Christ. Whether you see it or not, this is the truth that's going on in the world. The cross began a great reversal. The cross doesn't promise a great reversal. It began a great reversal. The world began going the right direction from the cross forward. Right now, there are more people who believe in Jesus Christ than any other time in human history, and tomorrow there'll be more. <laughs> there is a groan and an ache, according to Romans chapter 8. There is a, a groan and an ache that God places in the soul of every one of his children. A groan for the world as it ought to be. And it's not only in his children, it's in the soil itself. Creation is groaning right alongside with us. And that ache is becoming truer and truer every day. 
And so in verses 11 and 12, in him we have obtained an inheritance. That's that promised world and everything in it that's already begun now, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, all things, according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Inheritance. You are richer than you know. God's all about bringing glory to his name. God's all about taking the glory the Father, Son, and the Spirit have experienced forever and ever and ever and creating creatures who can participate in that glory. He's all about spreading that glory and causing us to enjoy it. And that means that he is maneuvering every single moment and every single molecule to that end. All of history is moving toward that end. You are richer than you know. You are richer than you know. Verses 13 and 14, In him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with a promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we get all of it, until we acquire possession of it. All of this is to the praise of God's glory. This word guarantee in verse 14 can also be translated a down payment. For every true believer, God's very spirit, the spirit of Jesus, invades them permanently. And that invasion is a down payment, a first installment, tangible evidence, as we're going to see in a moment, tangible evidence that, in fact, God is going to make good on the rest of his promises. So that no matter what we encounter, uh, the Spirit of God is that guarantee. In fact, uh, can I just give a quick advertisement? When we start back up these classes, 945, uh, in September, we'll start a class downstairs on the Holy Spirit. We'll talk about how he convicts us. We'll talk about how he comforts us. We'll talk about how he directs us. We'll talk about how, how he keeps us, all the ways the Holy Spirit is alive and well in our life and how we can pick up on him better. So this is the what, verses 3 through 14. This is the what of the church's center. Without this, you do not have a church. Without the gospel, you don't have a church. You have a club. In other words, we've been chosen before the Father, before the universe began. We've been lavishly saved and blessed by the Son so that everything he has, we have. And we've been sealed by the Spirit so that no matter what we encounter, nothing threatens the fact that what he began in us, he will finish in us. Do you understand now why 3 through 14 is one long run-on sentence? Uh, does it make sense to you why, why that, that ought to be? Uh, someone has said the gospel is not good news. It's, uh, or the gospel, sorry, is not uh, good advice, it's good news. Think about that for just a moment. The gospel is not good advice. Here's how you should live. It's good news. Here's what has been done for you. Now live. And this is all ours. This is all ours because of the who. Verses 20 through 23, the exalted Christ. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated at him his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. 
He put all things under his feet, gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. There are three successive moves on the part of Christ here. Uh, He is raised from the dead. He's seated in heaven. And then all of the world is placed underneath him. All of that happened at the cross. That's why it began the great uh, reversal. He was raised, he was seated, and he was placed. Which, by the way, the book of Ephesians goes on to say, so were we. We were also raised, seated, and placed. All that's true of the head is true of the body. We'll, we'll see that in another, uh, another uh, message. But I want you to notice in verses 21 through 22, all of these, these words here. Again, it seems like Paul is just full of enthusiasm because he can't find enough words to describe it. These, this is the vocabulary of unthreatened authority. Jesus has an authority that, that is experiencing virtually no threat. He's far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. He's above every name that to be named. He's over all ages. All things are under him. He's over all things. But here's what I want you to really notice. How does the authority of Jesus show up in this world? How does the authority of Jesus show up in this world? Verse 23, the church. I don't, want you, I don't want you to think too weirdly about this metaphor, but it's almost like Jesus' head is stuck in heaven and the only thing the world can see is the rest of his body. I love the way the message captures this so well. All this energy issues from Christ. God raised him from death. He set him on a throne in deep heaven, in charge of running the universe, everything from galaxies to governments, no name and no power exempt from his rule, and not just for the time being, but forever. He's in charge of it all. He has the final word on everything. At the center of all this, Christ rules the church. The church, you see, is not peripheral to the world. The world is peripheral to the church. The church is Christ's body in which he speaks and acts by which he fills everything with his presence. Yep, that church. And on the one hand, I know some of this is familiar to you, but I just want this to, I, I just want you to try to let this sink in for just a moment as to who you are. We spend so much of our lives. It's one of the things that I cannot wait to exit and to, to be with the Lord. We spend so much of our lives thinking about me. All the world and how it connects to me, thinking about how I come across to people, how I don't come across to people. Just, it's sickening sometimes. Don't you just want sometimes to just quit thinking about yourself for at least 30 seconds? And so I want you to just think about Christ and his body for just a moment. And yes, I know there's things about the body that need perfecting and that's why the last message is going to be the best perhaps is about the beauty of the church but i want you to just think about the so what of this right now we the church are disciples we are disciples first and foremost i want you to look at verses 15 through 18 he says for this reason in verse 15 what's he referring to well the long sentence of 3 through 14 for this reason for the gospel 
because the gospel is so dense and so profound, I pray something for you. I pray this because because you've come to Christ, your spiritual eyes have been opened. You're no longer spiritually blind. That's what he goes on to say here. And uh, you also have the Holy Spirit now navigating you through this world. So you're, as a result, the Holy Spirit is uncloaking unseen stuff, stuff that's been there all along, but you've never been able to see it. And the Holy Spirit is constantly uncloaking this, like Hebrews 11 says, uh, faith is the substance of things unseen. And when you come to Christ, he actually helps you see what's really real. He helps you see what's been there all along. And so the Holy Spirit is uncloaking this, and he wants you to see that there is hope and riches and power. That's why I talk about Ephesians is about mastering the gospel. In other words, Christianity is not about believing the right things. It's about experiencing right beliefs. Christianity isn't about believing the right things. Yes, it is, sort of, but that's a means to an end. It's about experiencing the right beliefs. And if you're not experiencing this, there's really a problem here. In fact, look at verse 15. What are some of the, um, what happens? I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. What's a mark of a true believer? Well, they have growing confidence in Christ and they have growing love for all the saints. Pretty straightforward. That's experience there. And then it goes on to speak about these beautiful things, the, the hope of his calling. That in other words, in verse 18, uh, having your eyes enlightened, I want you to know what is the hope to which he has called you. In other words, what's the confident, I want you to experience confident expectation that you actually belong to Jesus and that you're kept by Jesus. I want you to experience that. I don't want you to just know it. I want you to actually live as though it's true. Secondly, I want you to know the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. We could almost miss this, but there's something interestingly going on here in this description at the end of verse 18. Remember earlier, we have an inheritance we're anticipating. Guess whose inheritance is this is talking about? It's not talking about our inheritance. It's talking about God's inheritance. These two go together. I'm anticipating the day when I'm in paradise, and guess what? God's also anticipating the day we'll all be there too. We are God's inheritance, and we also have an inheritance. We're anticipating each other that day when we will be God's people and God will finally be our God in the fullest sense of the term. And then finally, the surpassing greatness of his power, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, this superhuman capacity has been given to us. And this is how it shows up. God gives to every believer a superhuman capacity to say things, to say yes to suffering, to say yes to serving despite my weakness, to say yes to obeying when sin feels like gravity, to say I forgive, to say I can wait, to say I was so wrong, to say I yield. To say, I choose to believe. That is the surpassing greatness of God's power to make us want to say all of those things. But here's probably the most important point I'm going to make uh, all morning. 
We, the church, are disciples. Did you know that the Bible, as far as I know, you, I would love to, for you to prove me wrong on this, and you could probably do it faster than I'm done with this sentence if you, just, if you have Googled, but don't. <laughs> I think there are less than six times in all of the New Testament that followers of Jesus are called Christians. I think there's only a few more that they're called believers. But did you know that 269 times in the New Testament, we are called disciples? A disciple is an apprentice, a lifelong apprenticeship. We are not customers who have bought an insurance policy from hell. We are not helicopter parents here to keep our kids safe from all the evil that's out there. We're not soldiers fighting a culture war to acquire power so we can make America great again. And we're not entitled sufferers who expect Jesus to be our spiritual Venmo and make life good again. We are disciples. We are grateful Odd disciples of Christ who are willing to do whatever our master says because we know he's always good to know him better and to make him known more. It's a lifelong apprenticeship that we're involved in. So if the church is by definition a training center of Christ's adorers, which I'm arguing it is, if by definition we are a training center of Christ's adorers and the only visible link between a reigning king and this planet, then it won't do to show up at church just 50% of the time. I know that's not true for most of you. It won't do to have a mostly private life with God. It won't do to go an entire year without someone pointing out at least one blind spot in your life. Because that's what this kind of place is. It won't do to have a Bible app but not have an application from the Bible to share every week. It won't do to not have at least one person other than your spouse if you're married who can tell before you do that you're struggling and that you're straying and any slight movement toward Jesus, they will cheer you. It won't do to try to live life without that. We, the church, are the disciples and we must stay the course. That's what makes the church, that's what is her center. It's, it's, the, it's the gospel here. We are living in a time of historically rapid change. You all know that, right? We are living in a time of great polarization. Uh, and we are, in the midst of this, we are to stay the course. We are to stay focused on things. Like, like someone said, I don't know who came up with it. The main thing, you've heard it, is that the main thing remain the main thing. And the main thing is the who and the what of the church. So when the church accuses us of being judgmental, or I should say when the church is accused by the culture of being judgmental and oppressive, guess what we do? We listen. You know why we listen? Because we of all people know our tendency to be defensive with our sin, right? We, of all people, know that we can have a blind spot. And sometimes it's the, it's the least source that we think that can actually point out that blind spot. 
We know better than anybody else those truths. Let's just be sure that the world doesn't hate us because of our hatred. Because of our posture of moral superiority, our truth superiority. Let's make sure that if the world hates us, because Jesus said it would, it hates us for the same reason it hated Jesus. Because his sacrificial love was such a blinding and exposing light, it had to be put out. Let's make sure that's the reason we're hated. And if we're going to make the case that we as the church should be engaged in things like saving the unborn and saving the planet from global warming, then let's make sure that it's because of who the church is all about and what the church is all about that ultimately is the reason we engage in such an action. Those are just many of the ways that this is how we stay the course. The gospel the exalted Christ, disciples. Without that, it's just a club. So I want to take a moment and bring up the worship team and the people serving communion and relate this to the, this great meal that we're going to share in just a moment. Like we always like to say, if you're here today, Maybe this is your first Sunday with us. Uh, this is a table, the bread and cup, the body and blood of Christ is for anybody who knows the things I've been talking about this morning, the gospel, who believes that Jesus Christ is the only one who can save them from their sin and who has willingly bowed their knee in lifelong allegiance to Jesus as king. So you'll come up the center aisle and then in just a moment, we'll all take bread and cup together and I'll lead us in taking it uh, in just a moment. But interestingly, this simple, simple ritual here, communion, there really is a, a PhD worth of symbolism for your investigation in this simple little meal. Here's the gospel portrayed in, a, in an experiential form. There's so much here. Think about the statement that I always make at the end of taking communion. As often as, and it's a quote from 1 Corinthians, as, as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do something. We proclaim, we broadcast, we commit ourselves to advancing the gospel. There's so many ways that you can continue to flesh out what that means. As often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death, something in the past, until he comes in glory, the future, the past and the future regulate how we live in the present. That's what's happening as we take this simple meal here, as we remind ourselves of all that Christ has done for us. So let me ask you as we take a moment to pray, and I'll give a moment for the kids to quietly come in too. Ask the Lord as you come to, to the table today, Ask the Lord to awaken your spiritual study skills. Remember, you're a disciple. Ask the Lord to awaken your spiritual study skills so that you might all the more, as a result of just being together today, join Jesus in loving the church and giving yourself up for her. Let's take a moment.
Lord, we're thankful that you accept us as we come. Not because we come to this table with a flawless record from this past week, but we come to this table because the flawless one has covered all of our flaws. And we come this morning to receive and be nourished by the body and blood of Christ that we might join our Savior in loving this church, his bride. And we pray in his great name as we come. Amen.